0: College football is here. Week zero is just days away, hours away for some. Nothing circles the wagons, quite like the National Football League. People paying more and more close attention to meaningless preseason games and basing opinions on those almost practices, if you will. And Major League Baseball is heating up. Races are getting a little bit more exciting. We're getting just past the dog days of August where you could start Predicting a little bit what might happen come postseason and what races to keep the biggest eyes on. Now, we haven't really talked a lot of baseball yet on this podcast for this season because there's been a ton of stuff going on. You can't rest in college football anymore because they're like the National Football League. Every week, something's changing. A team's moving here. A coach said this. A team did that. Crazy. We got a little time to breathe. We got a little time to talk a Lakers trade as well. So we get to have a little bit more fun on this podcast before it becomes football-centric seeming for the next, I don't know, 19 weeks. Major League Baseball, it was coming through the state of New York. Teams have since cooled off a little bit. My New York Yankees came right back down to earth after being compared to some of the historic teams in franchise history. They look just like, an above-average baseball team, which is exactly what they are, trying to avoid as many injuries as possible. Mets fans have the most hope they've had since probably 2015. When you're looking around Major League Baseball, Al, as your Cardinals aren't half bad, nice to have Juan Soto in that trade, but alas, doing their thing. A lot of familiar faces at the tops of the leagues, but anything standing out to you at this point in the season for maybe a surprise or teams you didn't necessarily expect to be doing as well as they're doing or teams playing poorly that you thought might've did a little bit better either.
1: Well, first of all, it's great to be back with you, young man, my partner, the, the big man, John tiny one, and our audience, uh, who we've been away from, from a couple for a couple of weeks. So it's great to be back with everybody. And uh, we love our listeners and we love hearing from them and appreciate their nonstop following of the program. And, since we've been away, uh, you know, your team fell on its face for a while, especially out of the All-Star break. Banged up, Yankees bullpen. You know, the two young guys that had been such a huge force for them, their arms fell off basically. One broken elbow, the other one DL, and it just happens because you're using guys so frequently who haven't been used so frequently in the past, and you use them so often. That eventually, they wear out, and the Yanks relied heavily upon them. They were healthy early on. They're not now. Stanton's still out. Uh, you know, the input of Matt Carpenter, I hate to say it, but was huge. And he's been out now with a broken foot. And Rizzo looks, even though he hits a lot of home runs now, he's hitting 220. He looks old. If you see him on the bases, he looks like a tottering old man. Still a good player, still a great defender. But you know, Anthony Rizzo's in 220. That's not the Anthony Rizzo we know. So this is not a great team. It's a good team. You know the old saying, Johnny, you're never as great as you are when you're playing great, never as bad as you are when you're playing bad. They're neither. They're a really good team. They're a 95 to 98 win team to me. They have some good starting pitching, not great, but good. They have what was a really good bullpen that's been decimated by injuries and is now okay. And it's funny how it always winds up. At the end of the day, like a bad penny, Chapman always comes back. It doesn't matter what the cycles are. But it turns out that Araldus Chapman is always the Yankee closer by the end of the season, and that's going to happen again. They'll win the division. Toronto's pretty good. Their pitching's not as good as we thought. Some of the offensive kids are having fallback years, not bad years, but fallback years. The Orioles obviously are the story of baseball from awful to competitive, where if the Orioles lost every game the rest of the year for the rest of the season, they would have still wind up with more wins than they've had for the last half dozen years. That's fabulous. We love to see it. Uh, You know, Tampa is what they always are. Doesn't matter who manages. It doesn't matter who plays. The one constant is Stu Sterberg, and nobody goes and they always compete with a payroll of $27. How do they do it? Ask Stu. I don't know. I have no idea. No matter how good they are, nobody goes to the ballpark in that dump in the drop shop uh, except Dick Vitale and Yankee fans or Red Sox fans when they're in town. Doesn't matter. They could win 100 games. They average 10,000. It's it's ridiculous. Just move the teams to. I don't understand why they don't get out of there. Go to Nashville. You'll make a ton of money. You'll fill the building. I know you're loaded. Every owner should go to the Stu Sternberg School of Baseball Ownership because he is a magnificent owner with incredible front office. Then no matter who goes in there, and the succession rate continues. It's just you know who's next. You know since, since Andrew Friedman left, they haven't missed a beat. And their scouting is remarkable, their drafting is tremendous, and they pay no one, and they just keep winning. No, they don't win 100 games, but they compete for wild cards, they compete for division titles, they're probably going to make the playoffs again, and you know, name that, name that, name that Ray, Please, name them. I dare you. And in the Central, the Guardians have stepped up out of nowhere. Terrific for Tito Francona. Ramirez is the best player that nobody even cares about was incredibly underpaid, signed the long-term deal to start the season, MVP candidate, your guy judge will win it, but Ramirez is fabulous, and they're probably going to win the division. And out West, it's pretty much the same old, same old. It, it, it's Houston, and you know, the Mariners look like they might make the playoffs, good for them. Texas still stinks despite all the money, and Oakland, move. Move. Unlike Tampa, you're no good. You have no payroll. Your stadium's a dump. Move. Get out. Enough with the commissioner saying, one last chance, one more time, get out. And in the National League, looks like we have a great race with the Mets and the Braves, as expected. No surprise there. Mets are terrific with the big two. And a little input from everybody else every night, you know, with, with Big Peter as their bomber. Some nice moves at the deadline, not great moves, but some guys have contributed. Deep staff, great closer. Braves, tremendous young players that they keep signing simply every time you turn around, a new guy comes up, let's sign into to an eight-year deal. Uh, let's sign into to a 10-year deal. Uh, whether it's Michael Harris, whether it's Acuna, whether it's Riley, whether it's Albies, they're all signed except for Damsey Swanson, who can, can be a free agent. So we'll see what we young staff. So the Braves are going to be really good for a real long time. Phillies can hit the hell out of the ball. Wheeler just went on the DL. That's a problem for them, but they're in the driver's seat with a wild card. See what happens, Harper coming back. My team obviously has gone Goofy. And now was a six-game lead against the Brewers. Excellent moves at the deadline. The Bader for Montgomery deal helped me. Yankee fans up in arms. Bader's going to be terrific. When he finally starts playing for the Yankees, he'll be the best center fielder you've had defensively in forever. Cardinals needed to make the deal because they desperately needed pitching. Did I think Montgomery was going to be this good? Absolutely not. Who could have thought he'd start four games and give him a run? Of course not. And I hated giving up Bader, but he was he, not going to play until mid-September. I desperately needed pitching. So you got to give him something to get something. Montgomery's went off the charts, a huge addition. Pool holes on the chase for 700, who thought he would go on this kind of run. I didn't. Rooting for him, don't know if he's going to make it, but would love to see it. Would love to see that 700 mark is the difference between 699 and 700 is mammoth, because you are in that rarefied air of, do you want to count Bonds? Okay, I'll count them. Up to you, Aaron Ruth. Three guys. Two who made it without any PEDs that we know of. If you can join that group, 699 and 700, baseball is all about numbers. It's all about numbers. We know that. We talk about it ad infinitum. He's seven away. It's going to take a big-time run because he has not play that often against right-handers, and he's not that good against right-handers. Only so many lefties left to face. Would love to see it happen and him finish his career on the ultimate crescendo in St. Louis. He's already doing it where he's mashing. He's raised his average 90 points from just real the All-Star break. He was hitting 195, 190. He's hitting 275 now. Against lefties, he's gone goofy. He's got the highest uh, OPS since the All-Star break in MLB, even above Judge. So they've got themselves a nice six-game lead against the Brewers. And out West, I mean, it, the Dodgers are ridiculous. It, it's unfathomable how, not good, how great they are. You look at what they're doing, and you know, remember, Kershaw's out for a while. He'll be back. Nobody even remembers that Trevor Bauer has pitched with them for a season and a half. Paid a fortune, big time starter. We all know what happened, suspended, out. All of this year, most of last year. Right? Now, their best starter is shelved until probably 2023 in Walker Bueller, who just had tummy John surgery, and they just keep rolling along. Urias is terrific. Gosselin is the Cy Young favorite in the National League. Now he's past Alcantara. He's 16 and one. Leads the league in ERA. The one-two-three combination of Bats Freeman and Turner is off the charts. And Anderson, Caney—they're they're one one Achilles heel. Could be the back end of that bullpen, where they're—I don't want to say Hall of Fame closer, but because he was on the the probably the route for that. It looked like he potentially could be that, but he has struggled immensely for the last year since he was traded from the Cubs to the White Sox. He's been not even mediocre with the Dodgers. But they got the big Caratop Redhead back. And if need be, who had his first start the other day and was fabulous after recovering Tommy John, they could always slide him back into the closer role. So the Dodgers are absolutely positively the best team in baseball. But again, when you have to go through so many series, not just a World Series, or even years ago for you relatively old folks who remember when there was just the AL or an LCS, or it was one series for the pennant, then on to the World Series. Now you have to go through three of them just to get to the World Series. If you're not a division winner, if you're at a division winner, you got to go through two and still get to the World Series. So it's a war of attrition and anybody can get in, beat anybody in a short series. As we've seen from what's going on in the past, the Dodgers are far and away the best team in the baseball, and, and it's not close. The other thing that jumps off the page at you is, is the Padres. All that money, all those trades, make the big move for you know Josh Hader, the Nazi, make the big, big trade for Soto, and where are you? From a standings point, you're probably worse off than you were. And, of course, Tatis Jr., the phony uh, you know, first It's the bum shoulder, then it's break my wrist, ride the motorcycle, don't tell the team about it, and oh, by the way, when I'm getting ready to come back, let me take a little ringworm medicine that I didn't know was a steroid, and Dad says, you know, and Big Sloppy, come out to defend him, the other biggest phony in the history of baseball, and he's gone for the regular season, the postseason, and a portion of next year, and you kind of wonder what A.J. Preller now, who made all these moves, this genius GM, who always throws, he's all in, He's all in all the time. He's always going for it. If you like that modus operandi, which is totally the opposite of John Mazzillik and the Cardinals, so be it. Uh, They're fighting for their playoff life right now. They're fighting the Brewers and the Phillies for that last wildcard spot. I don't know if they're going to get it. Um, They're not hitting. Their starting pitching is good, but they don't have a closure right now because Hader has fallen on hard times and isn't even pitching after they made the big deal with Milwaukee. So they have turned into a total crapshoot. I have no idea what's going to happen with the Padres. That's the most disappointing. In terms when you look at it from the overview of what you thought was massive talent everywhere you look to where they are right now. Remember last year they fell off the face of the earth and fired their manager when they had an absolute collapse after the All-Star break down the stretch and didn't make the playoffs at all. So the Padres are far and away the most disappointing team as far as I'm concerned because with all this stardom, with all this cachet, with all these deals, right now they're a question mark for the playoffs, and the Dodgers are better than even I could have imagined. They're they're shockingly good, and I believe they're going to set the all-time record for most wins in consecutive seasons. They won 107 last year and finished a game behind the Giants. It was 107 the game behind the Giants, and you know, they're on pace to win 113, 114 games. They're going to win 220 games in two years. It's remarkable. It really is. You watch them play. There's nothing they don't have. Uh, I mean, power, speed, offense, defense, depth, starting pitching, right-handed bats, left-handed bats, well-managed, deep staff, deep pen. Again, the issue is closing time. Are they going to need it? Uh, is he going to bounce back? If not, will they go to Caratop to do it? The point is that they've got the depth to figure it out and they are going to be, they look like the best team. We know the best team doesn't always win, but when you watch them play, you wonder how they ever lose. Cause they have so much of everything, everywhere you look and they just keep coming. They bring a lot of the minors. They bring over Joey Gallo from your club, who couldn't play a lick in New York. And he's a, he's a positive factor. You know, they find something with his swing. Obviously, getting out of New York was a huge factor for him. But to me, the Dodgers are, because they're so ridiculously, not good, great, are uh, the thing that jumps off the page at me. And obviously, all the deals the Padres made, the fact that they right now are, are really, they're, they're running in place, uh, which I think is surprising to a lot of people.
0: The Dodgers, of course, still trying to prove the haters wrong for 2020 and winning that World Series. Well, it was only 60 game season and no crowds, etc. So they're I'm so tired of that. Chomping at the bit I'm, to I'm shut so everybody up. Yeah,
1: they the would. thing the thing that the thing that does again when I watch Kimbrel pitch, he he looks like a different guy in it in at bat to at bat. You watch him try and close a game, and he'll face one guy and he looks. Absolutely like the Kimbrell of old of the Braves and before he got traded to the White Sox last year, where he looks like, how do you hit this guy? 98, in tight, up and away, on the corner, the nasty slider. And then the next guy, you know, he'll get ahead of, and then he walks him. Or his fastball drops four or five miles an hour. He has literally not been the same guy since he went over to the White. And they had Liam Hendricks and him together, and they tried to put him in setup. And he fell on his face, and he hasn't been the same since. You know, you watch him for the Dodgers, you never know what you're going to get. I mean, he's literally like those, that, you know, box of chocolates. I mean, he'll look fabulous, literally, in, in one particular bat, and then you're like, what happened? He loses complete command, he gives it. And when you're going that way, you give up the blue, your guy boots one you know that you know the way this game is played you go through times where if, if it weren't for bad luck you'd have no luck at all. You jam a guy he bloops one into left field uh, you know you saw a guy off infield hit which are normal, which should be outs but when you're going at those either wind up being hits one of your guys boots one makes a bad throw and and, boom, and you give up a knock and boom two three runs and that's the way he's been going. His stuff still looks good, but I don't see the 98 anymore when I watch him. I see 94, 95. Sounds great. But, you know, it's like saying Chapman is at 96 instead of 100. It's not the same. You know, part of their dominance is the ability to blow the ball by you along with the slider or the curveball, you know, and, and, and the mix of pitches. And if 100 drops to 95 and 98 drops to 94, well, that's not as dominant as it was and you can sit these guys can sit on that which is ridiculous to even think that they can sit on that but you know the old saying major league players if it's straight they can time anything and when you watch these guys when they lose their their mojo from a closing standpoint uh, they lose their command and if their fastball doesn't have the same life on it or they have Lose the command on their breaking balls and they're sitting on fastballs. It's a different deal. It really is. And that's where both of them have been very inconsistent, very up and down, not the same command that we've seen both Kimball and Chapman have, which create issues for both of those teams, especially for the Yankees because they lost the two guys who were pitching so well for them uh, early on in the season, who are now out for the season.
0: Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato. And this is the new report, old report. We as baseball fans can't say enough how important the closer is on your club. When you can go into the ninth inning with any lead and just have a mostly sense that you're going to win the game, there's no better feeling in the world. When you can't wait, for that guy to run out of the bullpen. And one of the reasons why the Mets are so good this year is Edwin Diaz has turned in the best closer in major league baseball with the best theme song to run into as much as I don't like the Mets. It's one of the coolest moments. Don, they're, they're following him on SNY with the camera behind him the whole way through. They did the half black and white in the color, like the wizard of Oz. They did it like Thank a so wrestling much. entrance. It's fantastic. You so like you turn the game on in the ninth, just to come in and watch him pitch. It's great for them to have that as a New York sports fan for the other team that had that for 20 years or however long it was. It's nice.
1: And they're, they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. They're, they, they win most of the games that you need to win. And I think that's uh, a huge element that Buck Showalter has brought to them. So the past couple of years, they've been, we've talked about it. They were a shit show. From the front office to you know, Mickey Callaway, they were a train wreck. Disorganization, all those allegations, showing pictures, sexual discrimination uh, in the front office, and, and just a mess. And finally, they get themselves a new GM, and who do they go out and hire? After a rookie manager last year did an okay job, but look lost at times with a deer in the headlights in terms of decision-making. You bring in a guy who is known for winning, who has never gotten to the big dance, whose team always seems to have more success after he leaves. And he was very buttoned up and a control freak. But, how to manage, is a professional in every sense of the word, runs everything to the how short the grass is going to be in the infield and the outfield. But that's exactly what they needed. The Mets were a hot mess. And they needed a manager to come in and take over and run the ship like a captain runs the ship where you are, quote, under my thumb. And the entire organization is under Buck Showalter's thumb. And that's exactly what the Mets needed because they were literally – lost in the middle of the ocean. They were afloat with nowhere to go. They were a ship that was just meandering about that had no one at the, no one at the helm. And he comes in and he takes over and he moves everything in the right direction. He does not miss a trick. He's on everything in every game, all the little things, the rules. Do I agree with every decision? No, but that doesn't matter. What matters is it's a guy who is there to make the decisions knowing that it's based upon the research sometimes what he sees sometimes what the analytics say and he is in control and he knows what he's going to do he has no misgivings no second thoughts and never questioned by the press you notice this year in new york for you folks listening that are not in new york there has been very very little second guessing of buck showalter because he has got this team playing hard well, and absolutely positively to the maximum capabilities uh, based upon their talent. They're not the most talented team. They've got pieces here and there. They got some really good players. They really don't have, uh, other than Lindor, a guy you would label as a great player. And Lindor's not great. Lindor was a top five player in Cleveland, in the major leagues. He's not a top five player. And right now, I think you would probably agree he's not even a top 10 player in the major leagues. Maybe you can argue he is. I don't think you could. I, I don't think he is. They got Pete, you know, the, the monster in the middle of the order, who is the man. He is the guy who hits the bombs. He's the guy who drives in the runs. He's a horror show on the bases. He's mediocre defensively, but he's rock solid in the middle of that lineup. Marte is a really good player. Uh, and they got, you know, McNeil, who's hitting three, three twenty, And, you know, Nemo, who's a gamer, uh, and, and, and pieces here and there. Uh, Connor's a nice player. $13 million for year, I thought was way too much, but that's my opinion. Doesn't amount to a whole the Hill of Beans. They got the two guys at the top of the rotation, good guys behind them. And like you said, they got the best clothes, the guys who have the best closure, uh, best year of any closure in baseball. So it's been a nice mix. And they've been also really consistent all year long. They have not had a lot of peaks and valleys. You know, very little, eight, there's no seven-game losing streak. Yes, they lost three out of four of the Braves. They lost three or four of the Braves against Atlanta. The Braves really good. You know, they also beat the hell out of the Phillies. So, you know, who were on fire when they played them? They played the good teams well. They beat yep. up on the bad teams. They pound the bad teams. And that's what you're supposed to do. And Buck has been the perfect tonic for this club.
0: Would have loved to get him instead of Aaron Boone. And it's clear who the better manager is when they're playing each other and minute decisions are being made you could just see it you could feel it and the mets knew what they were getting with buck showalter and are fine and we're fine with letting him manage there's no i wonder if the front office or the nerds or the gm decided today's lineup or the analytics what are they speaking to for why these decisions are being made you don't have to worry about any of that it's buck showalter he'll listen He'll probably take note. I'm sure some of that stuff helps, no question. But when it comes to his bullpen, his lineup, who he's pinch hitting for, you think he's going over to the binder to check out what the plus minus is and the the whip and the whatever else? No. He's calling
1: in the guy that his gut tells him to call in.
0: And if you're a player, you got to love that.
1: First of all, with Buck, he probably knows what the binder says already. It's true. Because that's just the way he is. I mean, you know, when you listen to interviews with Buck, he doesn't make it miss a track. This is one of these guys whose mind is so far into the game, and three or four steps ahead of the game. He always knows what he's going to do. I don't think there's any time where Buck Showalter says to himself, "You know, uh, what am I going to do here?" He's got it planned on what he's going to do. Before it's time to do it. And that's one of the reasons that makes him such a strong field general. Like I said, I don't always agree with his decisions. I don't always agree with the way he runs his clubs. But, and you know, with his hard and fast micromanage every element of the club. But it was exactly what the Mets needed. The Mets needed someone to take a stranglehold and teach them All about how to play Major League Baseball for 162 games, how to carry themselves as pros, how to run a team, how to manage a team, how to coach a team, how to deal with players, day-to-day operations, how to deal with bullpens, how to run your bench, how to keep everybody active and involved. And he is a master at all of those things.
0: And he's owed one in a sense. He managed the Yankees, called up the right guys. Put the team together. Never had a chance. Threw them down the road. And the dynasty started. Uh, And everybody knew it was coming too, which is the crazy part. Never had a chance. Those are the days. Those are the days when decisions were just made at the drop of a hat from the walk, from the owner's box down to the clubhouse. Somebody was getting canned. Who was it going to be? George Steinbrenner days. That's baseball right now. Uh, Mets fans obviously hoping that they don't blow it as older teams might have done, stay healthy. We talked about Jacob deGrom being injury prone. And one of the reasons why he can't be put in the conversation for great because he doesn't pitch enough. Maybe the injury that he had already this year will be the one where you cross that off the list. And it'll be good the rest of the way. We'll see. That's what they're hoping for. Obviously, but you got to keep your fingers crossed with the whole pitching
1: staff. Definitely. To me, that's the most interesting, uh, the NL, central, excuse me, obviously is, is, I believe the Guardians have a four-game lead as as we do this show with uh, the struggling Twins and the ever-inconsistent White Sox uh, behind them. But to me, the best race far and away is the Mets and the Braves because you have two really good teams in the NL East who have you – know, the Braves got off to a terrible start, couldn't get out of their own way. And since they've gotten themselves squared away, they've been – fabulous one of the two or three best teams in baseball and you've got two teams in the same division playing really well a couple games apart games left against each other Braves come to my park this weekend for three against the Cardinals which will be a really tough test for the Cardinals and I think that's the race to keep an eye on that's the race because you know somebody's going to be the two seed and the one who loses out is going to be the first wild card and has to play in the extra round and plays the six, which could be the Phillies, could be the Brewers, could be the Padres in a short series. So, uh, going to be you know They're going to be one, they they're going to be the four. Excuse me, because the, the Cardinals will be the Cardinals, or the Brewers will be the three, so they will be the four. So they will play the five seed. Excuse me. And that's a big difference. And I have no idea who's going to win that division because both teams are, are really good and both teams are playing really well. And they're also now both as healthy as they've been all year. Uh, the Braves are about to get out of back. He's the one missing piece of their regulars. You know, Duval is out for the season, but, uh, you know, again, Michael Harris is taking over in center field. He's going to be the rookie of the year, signed to a long-term deal. And the Mets now have the ground back. Uh, pitched well tonight, got the win. And you know, they are pretty much as healthy as they've been all year. Uh, it, it's going to be a great race for the the NLEs down the stretch with these two teams because, again, it's not a question of somebody's going to have to win it, somebody's not going to lose it. It's not going to be like the NL, the AL Central, you now, the AL Central, where – and there's no knock on the Guardians. They, they've had a terrific year. Nobody expected them to be in the spot. You know, Tito Francone has done a fabulous job. Ramirez should be the runner-up in the American League for the MVP, you know, behind your guy Judge. And I think they're going to win that division. But the Mets and the Braves are both playoff teams, and they're both terrific teams. And they're going to wind up with the second and third best records in the league behind the Dodgers, and somebody's not going to win a division. Like last year, you know, when the Giants and the Dodgers had the two best records, and one didn't win a division. Similar this year. But it should be a great race coming down the stretch. And I have no idea he's going to win it. I really don't. I I hope it's settled in their head-to-head games. Uh, The the Mets have got the big two. I'm a little worried, believe it or not, from a, a baseball standpoint. He's a horse. He is, you know, just a warrior. But Scherzer looks a little, for lack of a better term, right now, he looks a little suspect. You know, maybe it's innings. Maybe you'll know, remember. So we saw last year down the stretch uh, after he came out of the bullpen in that game against the Giants, he wasn't the same. You know, when would you expect Matt Scherzer in the fifth inning, sixth inning of a postseason game to say, I'm done, which he's told Dave Roberts. You know, Matt Scherzer is the warrior never once wants to give up the ball. And when I saw the other against the Yankees, you know, he wasn't, the Mad Max were used to seeing. He wasn't close to dominant, made some mistakes. The fastball didn't quite have a giddy up on it. Made the mistake to judge. You know, gave up a big two out base hit and you know, to Ben And right now, I'm a little worried about Scherzer in terms of, you know, well, we got the big one too. So it's going to be tough to beat the one the big one too. Because right now, with respect to both of them, who's going which one of those guys is going past seven innings? Right now, are they going to give me seven innings? You know, Diaz is fine for the ninth, but I'm a little concerned when I get into series play. How much I can can expect of them in the postseason in terms of innings, and then you know who's the bridge? I mean, do I do you, do you trust, um, you know, Lugo? Uh, you know, he he's up and down. It, it's just that you know th- these aren't guys who are going to go out and give you nine or even eight. So I'm not going to call it an Achilles heel, but Max right now to me looks a little bit vulnerable. And I still think it's the best one, two of any combo in the big in, in MLB without a doubt. But it's not a one, two, you know, that goes out and finishes games. They're going to give you seven tops. So you still got to finish behind them and get, get to Diaz. So that's my biggest concern with the Mets uh, because every time you say, You know, well, who else is going to hit? They find somebody else to hit. McNeil gets a big knock. Marte gets a big hit. Nemo, uh, you know, you you fill in the blank. It it always seems to be, you know, obviously Lindor is their best player. You know, Big Pete, you know, hitting bombs. So they've got a, a really deep, relatively consistent lineup. They've got the one star, if you want to call Alonzo a star, two stars, and a bunch of guys who... Fill in the fill in the spots and do a good job filling it in. No superstars, you know, behind those guys. Is it enough? The pitching? I don't see why not. I don't see why not because pitching is so much a part of the game. You know, pitching and timely hitting, and, and and closing it out. And that's they certainly have the recipe for it. So I think them and the the, the Braves is going to be a great race down the stretch.
0: And there was a point, just last week, it felt like, where. Yankees fans were wondering, what is this East race going to look like? That once impenetrable lead was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, almost getting swept by the blue Jays are obviously trying to catch them. It's down to seven games. As we record this, although they've got a series in Oakland, the Yankees do, and they're beating them eight, nothing in the third. So at least they get to play the athletics for four games. Then the angels, if you look at the rest of their schedule, they play the Rays again and the Red Sox again, twice. The Orioles once up. more time, They'll the Blue up. Jays.
1: They'll be up by 11 games by the time they come
0: home. Yeah, because they're, they're playing the Angels. They're and cutting. then the other, the other teams are the Twins, the Pirates. The
1: Angels stink.
0: The Rangers. So there's the series angels. that are coming where if you just take care of your business, you should be
1: okay. Don't win the division by double digits.
0: The poor Angels. Anytime Ugh. there's a, a tweet out that says what Shohei Otani's most recent record is, that he broke, or how historic of a game it was again, there's always then the period. The Angels lose 8-6. to It's you know, never, never a win for these milestones that he just continues to do game after game, and they lose. It's highlights that you have to crop the scoreboard out from the bottom so nobody can sell see the team, where man. they're at.
1: Please sell the team. Please sell the
0: team. Please sell the team. Send them somewhere else.
1: Help us and save us. Can we figure out what your fucking name is? I, I understand when they were born, they were born as the Los Angeles Angels, the days of Dean Chance, Bobby Canop, and Buck Rogers. I had a Buck Rogers catching that. He was Bob Rogers. was the manager of the Brewers later on. And then eventually they became the California Angels, which was great. Halos on the top of the, the rings on the top of the helmet, of the helmets and then the caps. And you know, Lyman Bostock and you know Doug DeSinse and Don Baylor and Bobby Grich all go over as free agents in 79. They, you know, Baylor wins the MVP and they have a great team. They of course lose in the playoffs, but uh that obviously 86 in the Donnie Moore scenario where they go to the three one lead to the Red Sox. But the point is they were the California Angels. The Anaheim Angels, they win the World Series, terrific for them. Then all of a sudden they become the, what, what are they? The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? Right. Can you pick a fucking city? Rolls right off the tongue. I'm going to the Kansas City, Omaha Kings in the old NBA days. Just pick a fucking city. You're not in Los Angeles. You know, you, you want to be the Anaheim Angels? I can live with that. They just, be the California Angels. Be the California Angels, all right? And rip down that dump that you play in. Enough with the rocks out there. In, in in left center field, the place is a train wreck. You build a new ballpark, the big A is Namas. No and the, the, here is this the scariest thing of all the free agent signings CJ Wilson, Hamilton. Oh, the terrible pool signing, and now the third baseman. Of all those signings, pools was the best one. You led the major leagues in RBIs. In the last decade, any idea? No. It was Albert Pujols. I know he wasn't the Albert Pujols in St. Louis, which were the first best ten years in the history of the sport. But he led the major leagues in RBIs in the last decade when he was with the Angels. Hamilton was a train wreck. C.J. Wilson was. A huge bust. And obviously, Rendon never plays. So the free agent signings in California slash Anaheim have been an absolute mess for Artie Moreno and company. Needs to get out. Needs to move on. Sell the team for $2.2 billion, Get new ownership in there, Pick a city that you're going to identify with. And build a new ballpark. Unless us get something going because right now they're it, it doesn't matter what they do because no matter what they do it, it, it's, it's a mess no matter who they sign how they sign them who they have it's not working it's almost like they're cursed really it's almost like they're cursed <laughs> even the wizard Merlot Joe Madden and his magic you know costume parties you know whatever you want to call it and all, all of Joe's antics uh, couldn't weave straw into global. It's been
0: a long time since 2002. The rally monkey, Angels. Troy Percival, coming out of that bullpen to close games out. The Angels need an enema It's a simple that. Jeez, no question. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's El Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Quick note from basketball for us Lakers fans and for fans of the sport, just to watch the world burn, I guess. It was announced, not finalized, but announced, reported, Patrick Beverly traded from the Utah Jazz. Spent quite a while there, didn't he? <laughs> to the Los he Angeles bev, Lakers.
1: The man you love to hate.
0: For THT, Taylor Horton Tucker. And forward, Stanley Johnson. What do you think? The man you love to hate is now, for now,
1: on the Los Angeles Lakers. Every sport has one. Baseball had A.J. Pruszynski. White Sox catcher. If he's on your team, you love him. If he's not, you hate him. This guy is a scooch. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Remember, he had the brush up with Russ a few years ago as they went into a timeout where he cracked up against him, knee to knee, wound up knocking Russ out. For a considerable amount of time. He had the push in the back with Chris Paul at the end of, I uh, should say, during a time, when, when you went to a timeout, Chris Paul turned his back, went to the bench. And I don't know where back, Babb just turns and shoves him with two. I mean, look, the, the guy is, he, he is absolutely a loose cannon. He's an incredible competitor. He's a great defender. He's a decent three point shooter. He's not a big-time offensive weapon. He brings the Lakers much-needed defense. He doesn't get them any young, younger, obviously, at 34. But he also brings them an expiring contract after this year, so they will only have AD and LeBron under contract. So they will have plenty of cap space, as much as those two guys make, to go out and seek free agents. But he brings them what Darwinham desperately wants to focus on, which is improved defense. And he is a, he's a warrior, plain and simple. You, know, you absolutely love to hate him. It's a guy you when you watch him play, if he's not on your team, you're like, what a fucking dirtbag. I hate this guy. And when he's on your team, you know, if you're winning and he helped Minnesota go to the postseason, you know, he is a great defender. And when he's on your team, you love the hustle. And you say, Boy, give me four of those guys. Give me five of those guys. And when he's playing against you, like he's the dirtiest bird going. He's the dirtiest, he's the dirtiest player in the game. And when I say that, I don't mean you know he he really wants to hurt anybody but at times he borders on being dirty because he's so effort his effort is so high end at times i think the desire and the will to compete gets the better of him where he actually just you know he does things if he had to do it over again i'm sure he would tell you I, I, I shouldn't have done that to Chris Paul. You know, that was totally Bush league. And it was a cheap shot. And the guy can play, but there's no place for that. If I'm a Laker fan and he does that, I'm like hiding my head. I'm embarrassed. It's, this is not the way you play. It's not the way, it's not championship basketball. It's not professional. It's classless. And I don't want to see any of that as a Laker fan. And I'm not going to defend that if he does that when he's with the Lakers. What I am going to hope see is tremendous man-to-man defense and a guy who works his Fanny off to make everybody on the team better and leads by example and hopefully provides some impetus to the younger guys and the veterans that they have that this is how you play you play hard you play 94 feet you don't let up you don't take possessions off because that's how you win games you win games you know everybody in this league can score gotta stop guys from scoring takes effort on defense and he'll give you that all the time.
0: Any looking back hindsight being 2020 in sports, as always Taylor hurt and Tucker was the subject of several potential trade possibilities. He was kind of the guy left behind when they had the, the schism and just got rid of everyone. And you're like, this, this is who they kept. They didn't keep Kuzma. They didn't keep, he's the one that stayed. And now you know, two years removed, He's gone. But Taylor Tucker was looked upon as hopeful to become something, obviously by LeBron, or he wouldn't have kept him around. And they pulled the plug on the experiment pretty quick.
1: Look, they signed THT instead of everybody's favorite. Right? Everybody's favorite digger. Everybody's favorite slap the floor. Everybody's favorite white mamba. Right? Wanted to stay in L.A. for less money. And the Lakers looked at him and said, "and said, sorry, we're signing THT instead because they saw the skill set and they saw the athleticism and they saw age 21 versus, what's Caruso, 27? 28? But certainly at least a five, six-year difference. And everybody loved Caruso and nobody wanted to see him leave and he didn't want to leave. And they chose Horton Tucker over Caruso, and it was a huge mistake because Horton Tucker, at least in the short run, was awful. He regressed massively in the last two years, and Caruso does what Caruso does. You know, Caruso was you know he, Caruso was similar to Pat Bev. You know, pl- plays the same way, hard, balls to the wall, all the time. Gives you everything that he possibly can, effort maximized every possession, both ends of the floor, not the prettiest, not the most skilled, helped you win a title. Turned your back on him when he wanted to stay. LeBron loved him. Fans loved him. Hard worker, loved being a Laker. They saw more talent in Horton Tucker. But THT did not produce. He regressed badly. He wasn't nearly the defender that Caruso or Pat is, And his offensive game dropped off drastically. He did not Not only didn't he improve as a three-point shooter, he regressed badly as a three-point shooter. And I know he was hurt for a portion of the year, but he looked lost last year. And he will probably, well, if he doesn't get better with Utah, he'll be out of the league. Because last year was so bad that another year like that will push him out of the league. And I'm sure he'll be better. Because I think he has too much talent not to be. But they made the choice, and it was obviously an incorrect decision.
0: Quickly to close, we didn't get a chance to mention this on the show. Your guy, Nick Wright's final 50 greatest players of the last 50 years, released the top three, something that was definitely talked about because it went Michael Jordan, three. Kareem, two, LeBron, one. You were part of this? Yeah, a little cameo to weigh in on his ranking system. For those that know Nick Wright, this LeBron James at number one probably isn't a surprise. And I think he made decent points to argue why he picked his top three, the way he did. It wasn't like he just threw it together with no rhyme or reason to it.
1: What do you, you think about you, how it ended up? You know, Nick, he puts a lot of thought and hard work into everything as he did this. I was uh, honored and privileged to be a part of it. I got to do, Russell Westbrook at 34, but I was even more uh, thrilled and honored to be selected to do Kareem at number two. And I thought Kareem was in the right spot at number two. Because if you look at the basketball life, the basketball career, Kareem Abdul Jabbar has had the greatest basketball career of any player of all time between three national championships at UCLA. Six titles and 10 finals appearances in the NBA. Still the all time leading scorer in the history of the sport. Think about that. Still the all time leading scorer in the history of the sport. He retired uh, 32 years ago. Now, LeBron's going to break that record, presuming good health, but he held the long, record longer than Wilt did. And the accomplishments at both, the, as I said in my little spot, at both the individual and team level, along with the longevity, makes him the holder of the greatest basketball life as a player in the history of the sport. There are others who have had as great a basketball life when it comes to player, coach, Jerry West, perfect example, Phil Jackson, 11 titles as a coach, couple as a player, obviously Red Auerbach. The list goes on. But just as a player, Kareem Abdul's, basketball, Lewis Kareem Abdul's basketball life is unequal. Obviously, my top three would have been flipped. Uh, there is no way I could ever put LeBron James ahead of Michael Jordan. Nick is a huge LeBron fan. I understand that. The accomplishments speak for themselves. But to me, Michael Jordan stands alone as the best player of all time. I would have him number one, Kareem number two, and LeBron number three for reasons we don't have enough time to discuss. Uh, I think Michael speaks for himself. You know, the age-old argument of, you know, what your only argument is, six finals, six championships, six MVPs, and the retort is that's all I need. That still works pretty well for me. Right.
0: Although, for younger fans, it might behoove you to check out the episode about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because I'm sure you know the number of championships off the top of your head. Six. Six. Correct. That was for the younger listeners. I would hope you would have remembered that.
1: <laughs> six championships, 10 trips to the finals. I think
0: that's, that's the important part that people don't realize is the, the bullet points right under that. How many times he went to the finals? How many other awards
1: that were won? Who he beat? Six, six MVPs. And you know all his championships were against great teams. And I think the thing, again, as I said in my little spiel, uh, when Nick was kind enough to have me make a contribution, is that to me his greatest achievement was in 1985 uh, at age – think about this. He is already in his 16th year. He's 38 years old. He's how old LeBron is now. And in 1985, the Lakers go to the finals after losing to the Celtics in seven. Game 7 in Boston Garden, they get ambushed in the famous Memorial Day Massacre in Game 1 in Boston. They get crushed. Kareem is embarrassed. Pat Riley calls him out, and then Kareem just flips the switch. And he averages 30 points a game as the Lakers win four of the next five. He is the MVP of the finals at age 38 years of age. The Lakers beat the Celtics for the first time, and they do it in grand style in Boston Garden in 1985 in Game 6 on the parquet floor. And he does it against, at age 38, a Hall of Fame front line of Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, and Larry Bird, who are the defending champs. Think about that for a second. Not one Hall of Famer, not two, but a Hall of Fame front line, all three of them. And he was the dominant player in the series, averaging over 30 a game in those four wins after they went four to, four to the last five to polish off the Celtics in six. And oh, by the way, he still goes on after that to the finals in 87, 88, and 89 and win two more championships. So it, it it's a remarkable career. It's, to me, a career that will be unequaled in the history of the sport in terms of, again, the individual accomplishment, the team success, and the longevity, second to none.
0: There it is. And it's I can't disagree with you, especially when people argue sometimes for, say, Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain or Elgin Baylor, well, who, were, who was playing back then? Who were they playing against? Nobody else was good. Of course they had numbers like that. Well, the Kareem part of that argument kind of goes out the window when you, as you said, look at the teams they beat in the 80s, the late 80s, especially the 85 team when it's Larry Bird in his prime, Ainge, McHale, Parrish, everybody you think of with those Celtics teams, yeah, that's,
1: they were there, and he dominated them. <laughs> And and the Sixer teams they beat in 80 and 82 were great teams. And they beat the, the terrific Detroit team before they lost to the next year. They lost to great teams, they beat great teams. The 80s was, yeah, I'm the old man in the room. Yeah, get off my lawn. But the 80s was the greatest decade in the history of the sport because you had so many unbelievable all-time players all playing against each other, which together as groups represented a number of unbelievable all-time teams Lakers Celtics Sixers Pistons all in one decade all incredible teams all with top 10 top 20 players littered throughout their rosters and they all won
0: it wasn't just one team beating them always they all got their taste of winning which was the cool part for every year? Who's going to be it this year? It was always there was always a
1: chance if you were among the, those few, which is cool too. And these were behemoth rivalries. They, they were great player against great player, great matchup against great matchup, and it was amazing stuff to watch. You know, in the postseason with Guy, and it was physical and guys. You know, they these guys didn't sit out games. These guys didn't have road management. These guys didn't want to sit down. And these guys maybe they liked each other on the court, but they played like they hated each other on the court. We had a decade of that, and we
0: had a decade of who's going to play LeBron in the finals this year. (laughs) Not too shabby to be in that top three. Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Football has returned. Everyone rejoice.
1: Great to be back with you, my friend. Folks, my partner, the great John Tiny Lund. Until next time, I'm Albert. I don't have my planes. Have a great sports weekend, everybody.
0: We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well. Or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.